Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Over the last several weeks, we have recalled teams from the past that don't exist anymore. The St. Louis Hawks, the Cincinnati Royals, the Kentucky Colonels. Today, we're going to turn our focus from the basketball court to the hockey rink and talk about one of the least known teams, I think, in the history of sports, definitely the NHL. Next. On Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the sometimes zany existence of the Kansas City Scouts. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello, and welcome again to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Today, I think one of the most least known teams to ever play in one of the four major professional sports leagues, the Kansas City Scouts of the NHL, a team that played for just two seasons, 1974-75 and 1975-76. Joining me in just a bit will be Troy Treasure, who just released a new book, Icing on the Plains, The Rough Ride of Kansas City's NHL Scouts. And yes, it was quite a rough ride. In fact, so rough that the Scouts started their first season by crisscrossing the U.S. and Canada on an eight-game road trip that was just as much a part of the Scouts' demise as anything. Yes, before the Scouts ever played a home game, their future was in jeopardy, and the team's managing general partner, after just the second home game, thought as much. Ed Thompson figured the team was doomed. The Scouts were a part of a series of moves by the NHL over a 10-year period that saw the league grow from its original size of six teams to 21, a rather large growth spurt, part of which was brought about by the advent of the World Hockey Association. The NHL expanded to California, added teams in Canada, hit the South in Atlanta, and planted roots in the Midwest in such places as St. Louis and ultimately Kansas City. But there were problems, many problems. From the construction of an arena to a very bare expansion draft, nothing like what the NHL provided the Vegas Golden Knights or what they will do for the Seattle expansion franchise next year. Over the course of two years, the Scouts won just 27 games, 15 in year one, and only 12 in year two. They endured a 16-game winless streak in their first season and a 27-game winless streak to close out their second season. And as bad as the Scouts were, 
the Capitals, the Washington Capitals, the team that won the 2017-18 Stanley Cup Championship, the team that has long been considered one of the NHL's best teams, Well, they only won eight games in their first year and followed that with 11 wins in their second year. Yeah, to show you the difference between the expansion drafts of today and the expansion draft of which the Scouts and Caps participated in, the Caps didn't finish over 500 or qualify for the playoffs until their ninth season of existence. As for the Scouts, who later became the Colorado Rockies and then the New Jersey Devils, they did make the playoffs in their fourth season, or second year in Colorado, and were ousted in the best-of-three series against the Flyers two games to none. They played a total of six years in Colorado, moved to New Jersey in time for the 82-83 season, and finally, finally, finished above 500 in the 87-88 season, their 14th year of existence, and that's when they went all the way to the conference finals before losing to the Boston Bruins. Now, the scouts did have a few highlights during their two years in Kansas City, and they had a few notable players as well, including Simon Nolay, Wilf Paymon, Guy Chiron, Dennis Herron, And we'll talk more about all of them with Troy in just a moment. But first, just a few quick notes. You can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Stay in touch with us by looking for our page on Facebook or visit SportsFH.com where you can learn more about each of our guests and each of our topics. Send in comments. Make suggestions for future episodes. See who's coming up on future shows and search the archives for previous episodes. Also, if you get a moment and like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star rating. And please spread the word. Let your friends and family know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. They might like the podcast, too. Now, back to the scouts. And here to talk about their two years of play in Kansas City is the author of the new book, Icing on the Plains, the rough ride of Kansas City's NHL scouts, Troy Treasure. Troy, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Glad you're here. I'm glad to be with you, Warren. Hey, so let's start with something real simple. Why did you decide to write this book about the Kansas City scouts, a team that, frankly, I think might actually be the most irrelevant team in the history of sports. Well, first of all, uh, the scouts were certainly obscure. (laughs) There's no question about that. And to your question, it'll come as no surprise to you, Warren, that you're not the first to ask me that. But (laughs) in a condensed version... I was eight years old when the scouts hit the ice in the fall of 1974. And one night, I was watching the television, and the old-timers out there will understand there weren't a lot of channels back then. Mm -hmm. And I was turning the knob on the television set. Of course, you had to do that. Back then, <laughs> I, I stumbled upon something that I had no clue about. 
At first, I thought it was some form of roller derby, which <laughs> was popular back in the mid-70s. There was this huge white floor on the screen, at least from the perspective of an eight-year-old. Well, it was a telecast of the Kansas City Scouts, and I was just incredibly intrigued, and that was my first exposure to hockey. I didn't know what hockey was. I didn't know what that little black thing was that the camera was trying to follow. And these guys are moving at rapid speed. Now, compared to today's NHL players, some of them look like they're in a beer league. But (laughs) they're moving around. And uh, it appeared they wanted to bang into one another. And I guess... The combination of the speed and the physicality was why I was first intrigued by that sport upon discovery and why I've been a hockey nut ever since. It's an intoxicating game. Once you're hooked, you're hooked. Well, I didn't ever go to a scouts game in person. I lived about two and a half hours away, and I was... I lived in a lower middle class family. We didn't, we we couldn't afford to, to travel and everything. But uh, you mentioned how intoxicating the sport is. Well, obviously it grabbed me through the television screen. But mm-hmm. uh, in the in the latter part of the seventies, I want to say seventy eight, seventy nine, somewhere in there, my. Uh, one of my grandmothers and grandfathers took me to my first NHL game at the old St. Louis Arena. Mm-hmm. And I remember Gary Howitt got into a fight with Bob Gassoff, <laughs> who, for your listeners that remember that era of hockey, Bob Gassoff was probably the toughest SOB in the NHL. <laughs> And he actually died, now that I think about it, he died uh, very young. So we're probably talking actually 1977. I mean, somebody can look it up and figure out I've got the date wrong, but he he was killed in a motorcycle. I get into it in the book. There's yes. quite a bit of yep. loose yep. stuff in there. Was 77 the right year? I, it, it, it sounds about right. But anyway... Um, To go to a game in person, I've covered a lot of sports in my life, and I try to tell people that there are two sports that I think you really don't get to, to use your word, get intoxicated by unless you go in person. One is hockey, and one is auto racing, whether it's open wheel, Uh IndyCar, or NASCAR, the stock cars. When, or, or even uh, the NHRA, the National Hot Rod Association. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is so cool. I mean, they go, they go from zero to three hundred in the NHRA. Boom, and it is loud. You soak in the smells and the excitement. And uh, so I'll, I'll never forget. And, and interestingly, I can remember my grandpa taking me to the box office at the St. Louis Arena. And he didn't know anything about hockey, and he asked me to pick the seats, and I didn't want to spend all of his money. <laughs> so we got we got seats pretty much not down on the ice, but not in the upper deck. 
and it was me, my grandma, myself, and my brother. He paid, my grandfather did, uh, 10 bucks for four seats. It cost wow. him 40 bucks. Yeah. So that puts it in perspective. <laughs> it sure does. Hey, Troy, so so where where did the idea to write a book on the scouts come from? So you grew up, you became a fan of the team, and so many years later, decades later, you decided to write a book about the Kansas City Scouts. Why? Well, I left a newspaper job, and I had some time on my hands. And I had saved all these years later, Warren, any, well, you know, kids back in the day, I think the Topps Trading Card Company kind of mm-hmm. had a monopoly on those type of things. But I bought hockey cards. I bought the baseball cards. You name it. Mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. still got. I've still got cards from the old American Basketball Association. Wow. You know the Julius Irvings, the Artis Gilmore's, etc. But uh, I started collecting any kind of hockey, uh, not memorabilia, but any kind of printed material on hockey. And I, I collected uh, through my pursuits uh, some scout hockey cards. I collected periodicals. Uh, you know, like a lot of kids back in the day, if you did your chores, you'd get an allowance. And I spent all my money on magazines. And for whatever reason... I still have those in my possession to this day. I told somebody <laughs> I told somebody recently that the only way I got rid of most of my college textbooks was when Hurricane Katrina hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast and uh when I evacuated I didn't pack my college textbooks and my cottage was destroyed. So that's how I got rid of oh, my college boy. textbooks. Conversely, I packed a box, and I I can't remember doing this um, knowingly, but maybe the man upstairs was thinking way ahead. I I packed all my stuff that had the Kansas City Scouts magazine articles and the hockey cards and and all that kind of stuff, so so I still had them in my possession. Now, to get right right down to the nitty-gritty, as far as why did I do this, uh, first of all, Warren, a book on the scouts had never been done before. Yep. And I found that appealing, and I liked the challenge of it, too. I mean, if, say, Warren, if you wanted to write a book about the Watergate scandal, you, every co-conspirator wrote a book. You know, they had time in prison. You know, they had you right. know, put pen to paper, sure. and and I'm a Watergate buff. That's the reason why I bring this up. And 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 later, if you choose to, we can we can get into the correlation of the scouts getting the franchise along with the Washington Capitals, and how that occurred when the break-in into the Watergate happened, and then Richard Nixon resigns in early August of 1974, well, then the scouts and the caps take the ice. And then in the scouts case, their on-ice history basically parallels Gerald Ford's presidential administration. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. My my mind works in 
bizarre ways. I, I wanted to steal the line from Forrest Gump, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but I, I just um, was fascinated by the team. I mentioned a book hadn't been done before. And I, was, I, I liked the challenge, Warren, of doing my original reporting on this book. Now, now when I say that, I, I must confess that I spent hours and hours poring over uh, old newspaper mm-hmm. articles. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, Kansas City, like many cities, Kansas City just wasn't a one newspaper town like it is now, and you had two newspapers. And then I, during the course of the research, I I combed through the Buffalo News and the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune. I won't run through the litany of it. Uh, sure, those are listed sure. in the acknowledgments. But I found that research fun. Although I thought I was going to go blind at times, <laughs> looking at this stuff on a computer screen. But anyway, I love the research. We can get into the interviewing process later if you choose. And uh, I will say that uh, I I am grateful to the former players and other folks that spoke to me on the record. But... I was turned down quite a bit, hmm, or interesting. I didn't get a response. And I have a theory based on one of my primary sources why that was, but I am grateful to the people uh, who spoke to me on the record. Several players, uh, former trainer. I mean, imagine that. You get you get a hold of the former trainer. Uh-huh. And that's a unique insight right there. Yeah, and you know, I recently young. did a uh, uh, podcast with Gary West about the Kentucky Colonels. And he told oh, wow. me, he told me that if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of a team, the person to talk to is the trainer. I believe that. And to this gentleman's credit, his name is Dale Graham. And if someone purchases the book, uh, yeah. They'll they'll learn Dale's story real fast. Uh, Dale is a very dignified man, and um, in the book he tells the story of how his that Dale was the assistant trainer when the club first hit the ice. Mm-hmm. The man that was instrumental in hiring him, the head trainer, killed himself right. just a couple right of months that. in. Yeah, yeah, and it's it, 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 and Dale is still all these years later. He lives in Wichita, Kansas. All these years later, when I talked to him, he got emotional because uh, his mentor, uh, the gentleman's name was Gordon Marshall, uh, really was like a father figure to Dale. But get to, getting back to your point about the inside of the trainer, Dale. Dale respected the privacy of certain situations back in the day, but yet still provided unique insight to which you refer regarding the gentleman and the old Kentucky colonels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know what? You brought something up, and I have to ask. You said uh, some wouldn't speak to you. They didn't return your calls or, 
or they just didn't want to speak to you about the scouts. And I have to ask, what's your theory as to why uh, someone wouldn't want to talk about the team? Well, Warren, that's multi-layered. Uh, for example, my favorite player on the scouts was a gentleman named Lynn Powis. Mm-hmm. Lynn lives in the Denver area, longtime realtor. And I actually spoke to Lynn, and he politely declined to participate. Well, subsequently, I find out that he was basically the coach's whipping boy the first season. He didn't do anything right to satisfy the coach. We hadn't brought his name up, but Gwendolyn. But anyway, I... In retrospect, I understood. Mm -hmm. Another player who is a primary source, Robin Burns, just a fantastic man. His life after retiring from hockey is incredible. Um, He told me, basically, I expressed from, oh gosh, I talked to Robin, I think, four times. Mm -hmm. said uh, He said, well, Troy, some of the guys have different lives with different lives (laughs) and makes sense. Uh, Warren, probably the most frustrating part of the research process was uh, tracking these guys down. Um, Dennis Heron, the young goalie, he was in his early twenties and and I spoke to Dennis for the book and I've got a bio on him Mm -hmm. growing up just outside Montreal. And Dennis went on to a pretty darn good career. He was a good goalie. No doubt about it. Yes, he was. And so he was the kid on the end of the spectrum, but most of the guys were in their 70s. And um, I sent several letters to addresses in Canada. I won't get into the oh, the tedious research of trying to even get a <laughs> mailing address on, on people. I got responses from time to time. For example, Robin Burns. I mailed him a letter, and he responded back via email, and and we went from there. But, for example, uh, a name we haven't brought up yet was the scout's first ever amateur draft choice, Wilf Pima. He was a and he was a heck of a player. He really was, and he had a very very good career in the NHL. We can talk about how his rookie contract uh, blew up the player personnel budget of the Kansas City Scouts, if you want later. But, <laughs> but yes, he, 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 of course, he hit it at the right time. He had a rival league in the WHA. But to, to the point of our subject, I, I mailed three different letters to an address that I thought was Wilf Pima's in Mississauga, Ontario. And in all three cases, I not only didn't get a response, but none of the, none of those letters were returned to me, being, mm. you know, returned to sender. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, I don't know the origin of the file 13 type of thing. I guess it's because 13's unlucky. Maybe in my case I was unlucky, but uh, he, he didn't respond. And I... I I had people that uh, said, oh, it's okay. What you have with your sources is is good. In a perfect world, it would have been better to get 
verbal response. Uh, mm-hmm. The team's first captain, Simone Nolay. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked to him on the phone briefly twice, just trying to set, you know, let him know who I was and where I was coming from. And all I can tell you ultimately is Mr. Nolay was rude. He, he huh. did, in the way he turned me down, um, you know, but to each his own. That's yeah. all I can say. Yeah. Well, Troy, the Kansas City Scouts, that was not their original name. In fact, no. they were supposed to be the Kansas City Hawks, but the Chicago Blackhawks objected. So why did the Blackhawks object, and how did Kansas City come up with the name Scouts? Well, that's really interesting. The proposed name of the team was, or, you know, mascot, was going to be the Mohawks, and that paid homage to the states of Kansas and Missouri. Uh, Mo, obviously the abbreviation for the state of Missouri. Mm-hmm. And then the state of Kansas, back during the Civil War, Kansas and Missouri had serious issues. <laughs> and there was a term in Kansas uh, referring to some soldiers as Jayhawkers. And a lot of our listeners will understand, well, that's, that's Jayhawks is mm-hmm. the nickname the University of Kansas. Well... Arthur Wirtz was still running the show. Everybody talks about Dollar Bill Wirtz mm. in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. But Arthur Wirtz and, and Bill, they, they were still, you know, they owned the team, and uh, they objected to how closely the proposed uh, moniker of the Kansas City franchise was to theirs. So Mohawks compared to Blackhawks. Okay, I guess I can see it. So then the Kansas City group has to go to Plan B. And scouts came about because there is a statue in Penn Valley Park in Kansas City. And I drove by it in July of last year when President Trump was in Kansas City making a speech and the roads were blocked. And I, it's a funny story, but anyway, to your point. <laughs> To your point, the scout is a Sioux tribesman mounted on horse with hand shading his eyes, looking off towards the plains of Kansas. And it's it's a it's a landmark in Kansas, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it tied into Midwestern history, and so they went with that. And, uh, but, but in all seriousness, July 24th, 2018, I'm driving to Kansas city to interview the gentleman who at the time was the lead legal counsel for the Kansas city scouts. And he was a young man at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was also a minority investor. This was my second trip to Kansas city to interview him. Well, I get, I live in Northeast Missouri. Just okay. to paint a picture okay. here geographically. So I'm crossing the state. I get about halfway across the state, and I'm within reach of a news talk station in Kansas City. And to my surprise, I find out that the American president is making a speech 
in downtown Kansas City to the Veterans of Foreign Wars Convention. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, man, they're going to have... I've covered <laughs> presidential addresses, and you, you don't just show your press pass to get in and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't need to go to that, but I knew oh, my, well, my travel route is going to be more than likely altered. True story. I can't go where I need to go. I end up in the parking lot of Kemper Arena, where the scouts Mm -hmm. and the NBA team, the Kansas City Kings, played. And I called this gentleman's legal secretary, and I said, Angela, can you help me out? I need an alternate route to get to the law firm's office. And uh, she did help me out, but I'm, I'm sitting here in Kemper's parking lot. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, yeah, back in the day, it was a modern place. And at the time, architecturally, it was very unique. But I'm thinking to myself, did the 1976 Republican National Convention actually, was it held there? (laughs) It was. Gerald Ford, uh, of course, he was the incumbent president, but he hadn't been elected. And he was running for the nomination and held off Ronald Reagan and and then eventually lost the presidency to Jimmy Carter. But uh, true story. And then I'm leaving the Kemper Arena parking lot and I'm meandering my way around and I drove past the Scout statue. Wow. Wow. It's a great logo. It's it's a terrific jersey with with the Scout uh, as a logo on their jersey. It was a, a terrific looking jersey. By the way, it's so much fun to do research because when you're doing research, you never know what else you might uncover besides the topic that you're researching. And if I understand this correctly, you discovered something very interesting as far as team names are concerned. I think it's pretty fair to say that virtually every football fan thinks that the Kansas City Chiefs name is derived from Indians, but it's not, at least according to what you wrote in your book. Would you explain that? Sure, Warren. Love to. When Lamar Hunt decided that the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex could not support both his AFL Dallas Texans and the Dallas Cowboys. He made the decision to move. And I mentioned in the book some of the cities that uh, he considered and visited. He settled on Kansas City. And believe it or not, I read somewhere that there was initially a consideration once he decided to move the team to Kansas City, to call the team the Kansas City Texans. (laughs) I I guess it was probably squelched fairly quickly. So you bring up what you ask is a great question because the hockey team, the scouts, uh, they were named after this statue of a Sioux tribesman. The Chiefs were actually named after the mayor of Kansas City at the time, whose nickname was Chief. <laughs> <laughs> and this 
the mayor was very proactive in trying to get Mr. Hunt to bring the team to uh, the municipal stadium in Kansas City. And uh, so, yeah, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs are named after a former Kansas City mayor. That's so interesting. Well, you know, the name of the team wasn't the only obstacle that the scouts had to overcome. They needed a place to play. So talk about how building Kemper Arena really affected the scouts' first season because this team went on a long road trip before they ever played their first home game. And getting this building built was not an easy chore. No, it wasn't. And it was, to use a cliche, a political football just determining where this new arena in Kansas City would be built. The ownership group that eventually was granted the franchise by the National Hockey League actually wanted to build what turned out to be Kemper in suburban Overland Park, Kansas, which was then and is still today the most affluent financially uh, area of the state of Kansas. But uh, through all the political stuff that I won't bore people with, it's in the book if you want to read it, but it eventually was uh, a building constructed down in the river bottoms as a part of uh, uh, helping the American Royal Rodeo, which was huge back then. Mm -hmm. It was huge. It wasn't just horses and cattle. I mean, farm implement dealers came in and they brought their tractors and combines. And, of course, Kansas City geographically is, you know, agriculture was then and still is very, very important. The aforementioned eight-game road trip to which you refer, that occurred because, how can I put it nicely, back in the 1970s, labor unions struck whether they needed to or not. I use that line in the book. And the plumbers would strike, and the bricklayers would have an issue. And, and so Kemper's, uh, the, the, once they decided on a site, that was delayed due to politics. And then once building began, then you'd have a strike that would, if not completely bring construction to a halt, slowed it. And so it's interesting, Warren, I, when I started this project, I already knew it, but I had read that the reason why the scouts had to start their first season, 1974-75, with this eight-game road trip that circled North America, it was because of the American Royal Rodeo. That's not fair to the rodeo. It's not true. Kemper was delayed so much that the NHL finally had to rearrange the schedule. The NHL had actually granted a game with the Scouts and the Minnesota North Stars to open that National Hockey League season a few days before the rest of the teams would have their season opener. Hmm. You'd have that game you'd have that game in Kansas City one or two more, and then the scouts would be sent on the road for a long time, just like the Blackhawks and the Bulls have to vacate back in the day Chicago mm -hmm. Stadium. 
and the United Center because there's like the circus is there for two weeks. The San Antonio Spurs and the St. Louis Blues Top Farm Club, the San Antonio Rampage, they recently had to go on these long road trips because uh, AT&T Center in San Antonio hosts this huge rodeo, which seems apropos for, for Texas. But uh, all of that went for naught, and they, they hopefully I can get this geography right. They, they play their first game in Toronto, next game on the island against the Islanders, bus to Philly, they fly quickly back to Kansas City, they have a few days off, then they get back in the air and play the Atlanta Flames. Uh, the next night, they play the Kings at the Forum in L.A. Wow. Then they go up and play the California Seals. Then they go up and play the Vancouver Canucks. And then they go all the way back to Boston and play oh, the Bruins man. and get creamed. And then finally, they get to come back and get ready for their first ever home game against the Chicago Blackhawks. And at that point, there was something like 0-7-1. and Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They tied the seals. Wow. Incredible. Hey, why did the NHL want to put a team in Kansas City? What was the draw? Well, a significant part of it gets back to the rival league, the WHA. And for those that don't recall, Back in 67, 68, the league doubled its size from six teams to 12, and that in itself was important ultimately for Kansas City, and I'll get to that in a moment. But then in 70, they bring in the Buffalo Sabres and the Vancouver Canucks. By 72, uh, this rival league was forming, and the NHL decided to put franchises in Atlanta and on New York's Long Island to thwart the rival league mm-hmm. from getting into those markets. And that was part of it uh, with Kansas City and Washington as well. I mentioned 72 when the Flames and the Capitals, or excuse me, the Flames and the Islanders uh, hit the ice. Well, 72 is when Kansas City and Washington were granted the franchises. So the NHL was trying to be proactive against the World Hockey Association. Now, back to the connection with the 68, 67-68 expansion. One of those teams, the new teams, was the St. Louis Blues. Mm-hmm. And when the Blues came into existence, they established their top minor league hockey affiliate in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And, and geographically, it fit, of course. I mean, just a bus ride or car ride on I-70, you could get your player to, from Kansas City to St. Louis rather quickly. Well, the Kansas City Blues... Uh, the Central Hockey League grew pretty well. Uh, but they were playing in an old building, and through the stewardship of St. Louis ownership, the NHL told Kansas City that if you ever build a new modern arena, we'll consider you. And it's, this gets back to Kemper and, and all that. And, and, and Of course, they granted the hockey franchise. I mentioned before, you mentioned it too, they granted the hockey franchise, the league does, based on the premise that this arena is going to be ready. And it was ready a few weeks late. But, a few weeks late. <laughs> yeah, a few weeks late. And, uh, and it, it went from there. Mm-hmm. Now, 
the man charged with building the scouts was Sid Abel. And he was, uh, you know, a hockey legend. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Sid? Well, it's ironic that we talk about Mr. Abel because I don't need to tell you that we just found out what. Yeah, just a little while ago. His uh, fabulous left winger, Ted Lindsay, passed away. That, 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 I digress, but I just want your listeners to know I, I had so much respect for Ted Lindsay. He, he was undersized and tough but skilled, as it is when he was playing with the Detroit Red Wings at Abel centered uh, the production line, which I still think, arguably, and Detroiters will back this up, uh, the greatest line in National Hockey League history with Lindsay on the left and Mr. Hockey Gordy Howe on the right. Yep. And uh, But uh, I said Abel had... Um, had retired long before he came to Kansas City, became general manager, coach of the Red Wings later, and then had a falling out with uh, uh, the ownership in, in Detroit, primarily with Bruce Norris, and ended up gravitating to St. Louis, coached, and then was GM. And the Blues let him out of his contract as GM of, the, of that franchise because Abel had expressed an interest in building a franchise from the ground up. And so uh, Kansas City Hockey Associates, I haven't mentioned that term yet, but that was the name of the group that was granted the franchise. Uh, They had a lot of issues, uh, primarily being underfinanced, but they made a very savvy decision to hire Sid Abel because he knew what he was doing. And Abel made a very good decision in naming another savvy hockey lifer as his right-hand man and assistant general manager Baz Bastien. Mm-hmm. And so th- those two gentlemen knew what they were doing, and they knew what they were up against, too. As far as talent, they were going to be able to get in the upcoming expansion draft, and, and then they they did establish a very small scouting team to a vast team primarily scouting the existing NHLers along with Abel and then uh, a couple of three other fellows scouted the amateurs, which led to Will Pema being picked. He was the second overall pick in the 1974 draft. Washington via uh, coin flip got the first pick, but uh, when it came to hiring good hockey people, Kansas City did it the right way. Uh, they were very lucky to have Sid Abel. Uh, ultimately, the money ran out and the time ran out. Yeah, I'm sure that Sid never thought he would face the challenges that he faced as GM of the Kansas City Scouts, but he... He also made a pretty good hire for coach in Bep Gidelin. Tell me about Bep. Well, he was a hockey lifer during World War II. He became the youngest player ever to don a NHL sweater in an official NHL game at the age of 16. A lot of the players said Abel. 
uh, Bastine, I think, also. A lot of those guys that were playing in the pros, when World War II broke out, hockey became secondary. Mm-hmm. And uh, in those two gentlemen's cases, they went into the Canadian armed services. Of course, back then, I don't think there was a single American. Maybe Frank Brimsick had broken in with the Bruins by then as an American, but uh, Gidlin eventually had to uh, leave hockey and and serve during that uh, conflict as well, but he paid his dues after his playing career uh, coaching amateurs and in the minor pro leagues and eventually uh, got into the Boston system as a coach. And Harry Sinden at some point made a change with the head coaching position and brought that uh, Gittleman on board. And shortly thereafter, they go to the Stanley Cup final only to lose to the Philadelphia Flyers. Well, that, to his credit, and I'll defend him on this account, he thought that since he had coached his team to the Stanley Cup final, he deserved something better than a one-year contract. Mm-hmm. Sure. And Mr. Sinden didn't give it to him. And I think, I don't know what he was making with Boston. I know what he was paid by the scouts in the first year was $40,000. It gives you an idea of the financials back then. Yeah. But Gidlin said, I'm okay. I'll check out alternatives. Sid Abel jumped on him fast. Oh, I mean, you got, yeah. you got a guy that just coached the Boston Bruins. Now, granted, you got a guy wearing number four playing for you. <laughs> and you got Phil Esposito playing for you. And you got Ken uh, Hodge. And, you oh, know, yeah. You Jerry got a, Cheevers. Yeah, 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 you got yeah. a heck of a team. Yep. Yeah. Johnny Busick, the chief. Uh, yeah. Anyway... <laughs> He basically had an easier job coaching the Bruins than he did the next season when he coached the Kansas City Scouts. Oh, I bet. I bet. I mean, yeah. 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 You know, you have this great management team that they they put together, and then comes this expansion draft. Can you talk at all about how the expansion draft differed in 1974? for the scouts and the Washington Capitals, as opposed to how it just worked for Vegas. And by the way, Seattle will draft under the same rules as Vegas did, with the exception that Vegas is exempt from exposing any of its players. Besides the fact that the talent pool is so much larger today than it was in 1974, how tough was it to fill a roster with anyone good? What was different back then? I mean, the NHL did not do Kansas City or Washington any favors. No, they didn't. I'm trying to come up with a cute way of comparing that expansion with the one you just mentioned and the one that's upcoming I suppose it'd be like you and I, Warren, being on planet Earth, and then (laughs) fast forward all these decades later, and we're on Mars. I mean, it was nuts. Um, Back during the 70s, 
the existing owners and general managers, Sam Pollock of the Montreal Canadiens, their general manager, gifted man, very gifted man, but he could have cared less whether the expansion teams of that era were successful or not. Okay, so at least the NHL, they, they begrudgingly learned this over all the other expansions. I'm thinking of Tampa Bay and Ottawa, mm-hmm. Anaheim, and then even more current ones like Columbus and Nashville. <clears throat> Excuse me. They, they, they realized over time that for the better health of the league, you can't have these expansion teams that can't compete. Mm-hmm. Well, back in 74, the Capitals and the Scouts, uh, the teams that were providing them with this talent pool, they they were able to protect all of their best players. And that's not to say when Vegas came in that the teams couldn't protect their best players. But there were loopholes that Vegas was able to take advantage of. I mean, my goodness, the Florida Panthers... They had fired, this is so ironic, they had fired Gerard Gallant as their coach in a very glamorous way. Mm-hmm. And then he turns around and gets hired by George McPhee, the Golden Knights general manager, to be the Vegas coach. Well, you know, Florida, through shenanigans, ends up sending Jonathan Marchessault mm-hmm. and Riley Smith to Vegas. And they contributed mightily, particularly Marshall. And I probably don't need to tell anybody listening to this that the Vegas Golden Knights' first season, which was last year, was historic. It was, they go to the Stanley Cup final. It was crazy. It, it's it's you know it's to me within the hockey world, most people realize what an amazing story it was and still is. But it was exciting. I think. I think in the general sports world, it's it's just not interpreted for what it's worth. But back in 74, the existing teams were able to protect in the expansion draft 15 skaters and two goaltenders. Uh, but back to the Vegas Golden Knights, they had much more to choose from mm-hmm. and so far as that draft. I mean, off the top of my head, and I could be incorrect, but when Vegas came in and they had that expansion draft, it was it was two-tiered. Uh, the existing teams could cover seven forwards, three defensemen, one goalie. Or the other alternative is those teams could protect a goalie and then I think it was eight guys. Regardless, you know, they, it could have been a forward or a defenseman. Well, Kansas City and Washington, they didn't have that luxury. And so since the existing teams could protect 15 skaters and two goaltenders, uh, it just created a situation where Kansas City and Washington both were, were in a best-case scenario, they were getting guys that were fourth liners yep. in the NHL. Yep. But in many cases, it was minor league guys. Mm-hmm. Guys mm-hmm. in the American Hockey League or the Central Hockey League. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't need to tell you that's a recipe for losing. Sure is. And and Washington and Kansas City didn't disappoint there. Washington won <laughs> all of seven games, and Kansas City won all of 15 games. Just incredible. Who was Kansas City's first pick, and how did they get him? What was the arrangement? Well, if you look on any kind of list on the Internet, you will see that the first two picks were goaltenders. And in that expansion draft, there was actually, they started out with a special draft of goaltenders. And so Kansas City uh, chose Michelle Ploss from the Montreal organization and Peter McDuffie from the New York Rangers organization. Uh, Peter is a source for my book, mm-hmm. and I don't think he would find me saying this, but his wife, Mary, was an even better source because while I was trying to arrange talking to Peter, Mary would tell me stories about how the scouts were on a road trip, and Mary and their son went out to go shopping, and they came back to their North Kansas City apartment and found out they'd been robbed, and the only thing left in the apartment was the lid to a Singer sewing machine. They took the sewing machine, but left wow. the lid. Wow. A tea kettle and some Canadian money, which was laying on a dresser drawer. You know, thieves from Kansas City probably looked at that Canadian money, and if they were smart enough, thought it was Monopoly or <laughs> something like that. But anyway, so Ploss and McDuffie uh, go to Kansas City as the goaltenders to answer your specific question as it moved on to the uh, forward and defenseman. The first pick was a gentleman I mentioned earlier, Simone Nolay from the Philadelphia Flyers. And that was a huge pickup because he had had success with the Flyers. I think he got caught up in the era of the Flyers eventually as they became the Broad Street Bullies. He wasn't a physical player. Mm -hmm. He was more of a skill, finesse player. And because of the numbers, Philadelphia left him available and said Abel snatched him up in a heartbeat. And so... Uh, he, uh, he ultimately, as I mentioned earlier, he was the first captain, uh, scored the first goal in Kansas City Scouts history in their first game at Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, represented the Scouts in, uh, in the All-Star game during their first year. Uh, by all accounts, Nolay was an incredible leader, and Kansas City was fortunate to get him. And their first Ultimately, I guess, the guy that would become their first real superstar or the franchise's, let's say the franchise's first real superstar because the scouts were only around for two years, um, was Wilf Payma, um, who they grabbed in the NHL's first ever under-19 draft. Tell us a little bit more about Payma. What kind of player was he and why did Sid Abel like him so much? Well, he was a highly skilled player, but he had a mean streak, too. And it's what they call, well, back in the day, I guess, a two-way player. Now, your terms like, oh, he plays with sandpaper or grit. Uh, he plays a heavy 
game. These are terms that are used in the NHL now. Um, he, as I allude to, had skill, but mm-hmm. he dropped the gloves without any kind of hesitancy. He was a big he, dude. Uh, well, he, he wasn't. For the time, yeah. For the time he was, Warren, yes, he was big. He was stocky. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the um, investors told me that they met Wilf's parents at one point. And this investor told me that Wilf's father's arms were thicker than this gentleman's thighs. Um, he wasn't tall. Uh, I don't want to say short. He wasn't 5'8", like Ted Lindsay. He just was built, for the time, a complete package. Mm-hmm. He had broad shoulders, thick arms, thick legs, and again, he could play. He had tremendous skill, and he he came with a huge price tag that I, that we mentioned earlier mm-hmm. to sign Wilf Pema. And you mentioned the under nineteen draft. That was a direct result of the WHA. The WHA they didn't abide by any rules, and they'd offer cash to some kid, and if the kid wanted to take it and didn't have some extreme loyalty or dream of specifically playing in the NHL, he took the cash. Now, he might get sent to a franchise in Phoenix or one that bounced around all over the place from city to city, but he, unless the ownership went belly up, at least he got paid. But to sign Ralph Pema, who was 18 years old, they ended up, the scouts, ended up having to give him a three-year contract worth $600,000. Wow. And believe me, these owners had no inkling they were going to have to, and I get into it in the book, Mm -hmm. there was consideration, strong consideration, not to sign him, but there was some backlash in the Kansas City media that if you can't sign your first ever first-round draft choice, do you even belong in the big leagues? Exactly. So they bit, they, they bit the bullet. But here's here's something that's, I think, kind of amusing. The scouts sign Wilf to that contract worth $600,000. Kansas City's ownership only had to pay $400,000 because the team only lasted in Kansas City for two years. <laughs> let's let's talk about ownership for a moment. There were so many people, something like, I don't know, 30, 35, 40 part owners, and they all had a voice. This had to affect the scouts' ability to thrive and survive. I mean, talk about the ownership here because – There's another guy who you talk about in the book, Jay Greenberg, and he was talking about the majority owner, Ed Thompson, and he said that Thompson leaves the impression that he feels he can throw six Canadians and a puck on the ice and that the majority of his patrons won't know the difference. He's right in the short run, but tragically mistaken in the long Wow, was this guy some sort of clairvoyant? I mean... <laughs> I think he was just ignorant, Warren. Oh, um, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, he, he had no background in hockey. <laughs> the actual number of investors 
in Kansas City Hockey Associates when they were granted the franchise was less than 30. It's closer to 20. But due to the tumultuousness of this situation, they tried to add shareholders, and then guys bailed out, and he had people investing and then mm-hmm. trying to get their money back and get out when they realized that it was financially a fiasco. But in Ed Thompson's defense, I think I don't I don't think he thought it was going to be as hard. Again, they didn't they didn't foresee a rival league, mm-hmm. which is fair. It's yep, fair to absolutely. give them. Absolutely, the WHA yeah. affected a lot of teams. Oh my gosh, yes, and so you had Ed Thompson, who was managing general partner, the largest investor. And this will give listeners a real clue on how discombobulated, or is it how I write in the book when I describe the ownership, the original ownership. Uh, unusually unwieldy, if that makes sense. The largest shareholder in the franchise at the get-go had a 20% stake. Incredible. Now consider that. Incredible. Your largest it is. It's 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 hard to fathom in this day and age. I mean, I mean, in order to have a successful franchise back then and even today, you got to have a sugar daddy that's loaded and is uh, sure majority owner. And so this gentleman, Murray Newman, was from Omaha, Nebraska. Then. You had two, excuse me, three individuals that bought a 10% stake in the franchise. So we have Newman's 20, three other gentlemen, 10 apiece, and that constituted 50% of ownership. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, one of those 10%ers was, for football fans out there, they'll recognize this name immediately, the... 10%er I'm talking about was Kansas City Chiefs head coach Hank Stram, who had hmm. just signed a big time 10 year contract with Lamar Hunt, the owner of the Chiefs, and had money and thought, oh, okay, this, this sounds like a good investment. I'll, I'll put in. <laughs> um, lost, his, lost, his, lost his lunch, for lack of a better term, financially. And ironically, he ended up getting fired. Just two or three years later, when the Chiefs went into a tailspin, and then you, the ownership breaks down into several five percenters, which I list in the book, and you, then you have a bunch of one percenters. Oh and, my! And the the attorney I referred to earlier when I went to Kansas City and President Trump was there, and I was trying to get with him again. He not only was the lead legal counsel, but he purchased a 1% stake. And what that was, was an overall commitment of $300,000, a lot of money now for me, and back then even more. He had to commit to $300,000 as a 1%er with a $30,000 cash down payment. Wow. And so to get back to your original question... You had a lot of, you had a lot of, this is an Indian reference, you had a lot of Braves that were chirping in 
and wanting things done, and to be the chief of the Kansas City Scouts had to be dreadful. And that was at Thompson. Thompson, Thompson actually was a Piper Center, but he was named by all the other partners to be the managing general partner, and you know represented the ownership. But to put it in perspective, the late Al Davis, I would say late great Al Davis mm-hmm. of the Oakland Raiders, he was great for a long time, but towards the end, he wasn't great anymore. Well, he was called the managing general partner. The difference between him and Ed Thompson is Al Davis owned a heck of a lot more of the Raiders franchise than 5%. (laughs) Sure he did. Sure he did. Hey, let's get to the product on the ice. The scouts, they got their first win in their 10th game of the season, ironically, over the Washington Capitals. The goalie... Yes, did. Yeah, the goalie wasn't Michel Ploss. It was the backup, Peter McDuffie. How did Ploss take it that he wasn't in goal for this game against the Capitals and the team finally wins? And by the way, I got to say this. It didn't matter who the scout's goalie was at this point. (laughs) Whoever the scout goalie was, was under incredible pressure. The scouts routinely gave up twice as many shots as they would take. I mean, how bad was this team's defense, for that matter, their defensive scheme? I mean, I read in your book that during this two-year period that the scouts existed, sometimes they would only dress four defensemen. I mean, I can't even imagine that. Well, when they got down to the bare, bare, the bare barrel of four defensemen, uh, injuries sometimes oftentimes were a factor and you know when your farm club is in Providence, Rhode Island and you're playing in Vancouver or something it's you know it's sometimes tough to call up a D-man from the minors and and get him in on time so sometimes for example to be a trade in the first season the scouts acquired arguably their their most skilled player in Sharon from the Detroit Red Wings. Mm-hmm. I can remember a couple of instances that Gittlin, with no other option, since he could, he was a tremendous skater and he knew the game, he could see the eyes. Out of necessity, poor Guy would do a shift at forward, and Gittlin would say, No, you're not coming off the ice, go work the blue line as long as you can. And but to your original question about whether Plus had any kind of feeling about not being in the net in the scouts' first victory, that victory was on a Sunday in D.C. after the scouts had lost their home opener the previous night in Kansas City, and he was in net. And I suspect that either Peter or Plus. Yeah, you would have liked to have been in the net for the first victory, but when you're, and here's a quote from Beth Gittlin, when you're being bombarded like it's World War II, <laughs> you might not mind a night off. And McDuffie and Plus during that first eight-game road swing, they pretty much split the net. 
and Prowls was eventually traded. Yep. During that first season, due to a contractual impasse, and a lot of people don't know this, but yes, Dennis Heron came from Pittsburgh when Abel traded Plus to Pittsburgh. But Peter McDuffie, I'll say he was in net for 37 games during that first mm-hmm. scout season, and that was his the pinnacle of his NHL career. The next off season, he was traded to Detroit, and he. Jim Rutherford, the current GM of the Pittsburgh Penguins, was an established number one there, even though Detroit was terrible at the time. And uh, then Peter tried his luck in the WHA with the Indianapolis Racers, but uh, it, it just didn't work out. And he ended up he had injuries too, and ended up retiring. But uh, it's interesting, Warren, that you bring up that that first uh, that first scouts victory against their brotherhood and disarms the Capitals. The uh, guy that scored the uh, a big goal in that game, he got his big break in the minors when a guy got hurt. And ironically enough, the guy that got hurt was in the Capitol Center that night. He was the head coach of the Washington Capitals, Jimmy Anderson. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Hey, you know, the scouts actually drew a decent crowd their first ever game, but they never even got close to such a size of a crowd again. They just couldn't draw. Why? What was going on there? 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 people a game. They never really got into... Uh, 10, 11, 12, 13,000 people a game again after opening night. Why? What happened here? A lot of factors, and I don't think you can discount the fact that they had to play their first eight games on the road, and they didn't win any of them. And so when they finally come back to Kemper, and, and, and Kemper, they were still paving the parking lots uh, with mm. asphalt or concrete. I mean, that's how late that building came about, you had a team that, you know, hadn't won a game yet. I will give the scouts credit in one sense. They 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 tried some promotions that I think were kind of neat. Uh, they would have some post-game concerts, Tanya Tucker, Freddie Fender, they brought mm-hmm. in the Hudson Brothers. Uh, I guess that wouldn't have been so much as a, a concert, combination music concert and hijinks comedy. Uh, Goldie Hawn was married to one of those Hudson brothers, Kate Hudson, mm-hmm. uh, the actress Goldie's daughter. Uh, her father is one of the Hudson brothers. One of the things I think they did a poor job of early on, though, even before they hit the ice, was uh, they didn't they didn't uh, have the foresight to have their players make public appearances, uh, be it in schools or uh, shopping centers. I don't even know if the term shopping mall existed back mm. in the 70s, but <clears throat> your your most valuable asset is your player, and you got to get those guys out in the public, and uh, uh, they didn't understand that. So <sighs> they tried what they thought at the time was conventional public relations techniques, 
And then I guess basically is they tried to bribe fans into the building with the aforementioned concerts. And when you had like a Tanya Tucker or Freddie Fender, oh, by the way, when Freddie Fender had his post-game concert. I knew you were going to go the, here. <laughs> yeah. The opponent was the Philadelphia Flyers. So they decided to promote that one as a Fender bender, considering the <laughs> aggressiveness of the Broad Street Bullies. But what would happen is they'd promote the heck out of these, uh, these post-game concerts, and they did sell some tickets to the game, but quite a few of the purchasers of those tickets wouldn't show up until 9 p.m. or 9.30 or about 7 o'clock or 7.30 opening face-off because they were coming in for the music. They mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of those folks probably didn't have a clue what a hockey puck was, but uh, they wanted to see their Tanya Tucker and Freddie Fender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, after the team's second home game, now you wrote this in your book, Ed Thompson pretty much came to the conclusion that hockey was doomed and wouldn't succeed in Kansas City. Why? Why did he think the scouts were doomed after just two home games? Well, don't quote me in the attendance. That's that's in the book. I want to say it was in the ballpark of four to five thousand. And back then, uh, when they budgeted not only player payroll expenses but just general operating expenses, so much of it was predicated on the gate. And as you alluded to, Warren, they didn't sell out their first ever home game, and then their second one, they get such a poor turnout for that. What you read in the book is a direct quote from Thompson to I, probably Jay Greenberg. Um, it was in one of the Kansas City papers. and, and <laughs> Jay was the Kansas City hockey guy. Mm-hmm. We can talk more about him if you want later. He, he was a tremendous source for me. That guy, that guy mailed me from where he lives in New Jersey on at least two, if not three separate occasions, mailed me, snail mail more than 100 copies of clippings of his work with the Kansas City Star and Times. He really helped me out. And for those that don't know, Jay Greenberg's not just any old hockey writer. Now, I know who you're going. I didn't realize it was the same Jay Greenberg. Yeah, well, I don't need to tell you. He's now in... I don't know if this is technically correct. I don't know if there's a writer's wing of the Hockey Hall of Fame... But he's in there, mm-hmm. and uh, he was just tremendous. He only covered the scouts for the uh, – well, he covered the scouts uh, as far as their creation, you know, getting the ownership and all that kind of stuff. Did it very well, covered the first season on the ice, and then uh, got a job in Philadelphia and began a long tenure covering the Flyers. And uh, he, he he was tremendous. But – uh, interestingly with him, he was hired directly out of the University of Missouri by the Star and the Times, and the existing veterans on the newspaper staffs, they wanted to cover the Chiefs or the Royals or the NBA Kings. The Vets, they didn't want anything to do with this hockey franchise. <laughs> Greenberg's from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which... The Everyone. Johnstown Chiefs. There you go. Uh, the movie Slapshot. And uh, he, he actually went to games at the new Cambria 
uh, at the at the Veterans Coliseum there, the New Cambria Veterans Coliseum, where Slapshot a lot of was, a lot of it was filmed, home games and everything. And he tells stories about how boy they really got on the opposing teams, and he even has a critique of the movie Slapshot in the book. But anyway, he 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 jumped on it when they offered him a. A, an NHL beat, he was all over it. And as he says, when when the when the team came home from Boston and landed at Kansas City International Airport after that eight game road swing, mm-hmm. everybody broke out into applause. <laughs> it's like we're finally home. But as he says, I'm 24 years old. I got a major league beat. I'm traveling around. It's a blast, <laughs> and led to. Uh, a Hall of Fame career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, the scouts, to to put it mildly, they just weren't a good team. Heck, they were a typical expansion team. They couldn't win. And I think, you know, effort is effort. And from what I read in your book, no one really accused them of not putting forth good effort. They just didn't have the talent. I mean, they had some good players. We talked about Will Paymont, uh, later on Guy Chiron, Simon Nolet, Gary Crotio, uh, uh, eventually Dennis Heron. I mean, they put some good players on the ice, but they didn't have depth. Um, opposing, exactly. op- opposing coaches and players always applauded their effort. But they didn't have the depth. Neither did Washington. Just how bad were the scouts? Well, they were bad. But for reasons that we have gotten into earlier, they were behind the proverbial eight ball. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't really given a chance to succeed. Yes, the effort was there. And you hit it upon a key point just a moment ago that because of their situation, and, and Washington was in the same situation, there's no depth. And you can't win if you don't have depth on your forward lines. You mentioned at times due to injury and varying situations, there was a suspension. It was crazy, and it led to Get one residing over a defenseman. He wanted sent to the minors. They wouldn't do it because they were paying him ninety thousand. The Kansas City scouts weren't going to pay somebody ninety thousand dollars and have him skating down in Baltimore, the American League. But uh, they didn't have an overabundance of talent. They had some. The names you just mentioned, primarily, Dave Hudson was a darn good player. Ed Gilbert was a very good player. Well, I don't want to say very good, but I mean they were they were serviceable NHL players at that time. But then you got down to guys that they've been playing in the minor leagues the previous season for a reason, Warren. And when you're going against uh, you know Philadelphia, Boston, Montreal teams like that. Uh, you're just not going to be able to compete. Sure. And one of the one of the things that I found intriguing and frustrating is that I mentioned Detroit during this time was a struggling franchise. Mm-hmm. Minnesota, the North Stars, they were going through pretty lean times themselves, and the scouts invariably would lose to Detroit and Minnesota. 
Yeah. I mean, they had yeah, some yeah. wonderful oh, upsets. Yeah. They had some wonderful upsets. They beat the Bruins in Boston Garden uh, twice, as a matter of fact, once mm-hmm. in each season. They beat the Montreal Canadiens in year two at Kemper Arena in a shootout where Wolf Pema scores the first and only hat trick in Kansas City Scouts history. But then it it was like they stooped their competition level uh, against the North Stars and the Red Wings. And so any kind of moment, when you win 13 games your first year, you're not going to have a lot of opportunities to create momentum based on previous victories. Mm -hmm. But then they'd lay an egg against the team they should have defeated. And it just uh, steamrolled Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you said they did have some high points. Like you said, the, the two wins in Boston, they finally beat Montreal in their second season. But as if being bad wasn't punishment enough, they also had to endure tragedy along the way. Basically, in the names of Gord Marchant and Mike Baumgartner. Tell me about those two those two people. Well, of course, regarding Mr. Marshot, uh, he was the gentleman we talked about earlier that took his own life. So what I was able to reconstruct about his life was newspaper accounts and then the first-person memories of his young assistant, Dale Graham, as you can imagine, the guys go to the rink for a morning practice. Sid Abel and Thompson, Beth Gittelin are there, and they announce before the workout that the trainer has committed suicide. And even though this group had not been together very long, this was fairly early in the first season, it was shocking, as it would be for any sensible person. And uh, they they just you know they went out and tried to have their practice and eventually eventually no lay went up to the coach and said after about twenty to thirty minutes that maybe we should just call this off nobody was in the in the mood for a workout Mike Baumgartner I'm glad Warren you brought his name up because he he actually. I talked to Mike probably three times. He lives in extreme northern Minnesota. Mm-hmm. In fact, he's so far far north in Minnesota, he's a Winnipeg Jets fan, primarily because Dustin Bufflin is from Rosso, Minnesota, the town that Mike grew up in. Mike played 17 games in the history of the Kansas City Scouts. And when they, they came out on the ice in 1974 as this new franchise, uh, Mike was a regular D-man. But unfortunately, uh, early on in his career, he took a slap shot to an eye from Dennis mm-hmm. Kearns for the Vancouver Canucks and never played a game again. Mm. And I don't want to say that it was considered a life-threatening injury at the time, but it was it was incredibly serious. And this injury occurred just a couple of weeks after the trainer had committed suicide. So young Dale Graham rushes onto the ice and is trying to assist him. The team doctor came onto the ice. There was a lot of blood. Mike's wife, Sandy, was in the stands. Mm. And 
as you can imagine, that they were young people, and she sees all this blood, and she's emotional, to put it mildly. And uh, his career ended. He tried to make a comeback. But what was so poignant is Mike was up front mentioning that uh, for the first year after his hockey career was taken away from him, he was pretty bitter. And mm-hmm. the loss of the sight in his eye also terminated his ability to fly aircraft. He had gotten a license. He was a crop buster, mm. and he flew aircraft. He took aviation classes at the University of North Dakota. Back back, back then, it might have been easier to get a, a pilot's license more so than today. But anyway, he did. He met all the criteria of the mid-1970s and could fly a plane. Well, due to depth perception issues, he, he couldn't fly anymore. But what is great, and <clears throat> for, for those that buy the book, I hope they appreciate the fact that Mike moved on with his life mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. became a farmer for more than 30 years and raised a family is happy. Um, he admits that when he looks back on it, what was so frustrating was that, you know, he, due to expansion, he was able to get a job in the National Hockey League. And he'll tell you, he wasn't a number one or number two D man, but he, three, four, maybe down to a five or six, he could play in the NHL. And for, for his time, Baumgartner was a big dude on the mm-hmm. blue line, too. I mean, he'd pale in comparison to guys now. But he was a big, strong, young, strapping guy. And through fate, Vancouver's on a power play, and he's in front of the net, and he turns, and that's the last thing he remembers until waking mm. up in the hospital. Wow. Wow. So, like I said, not enough that they weren't all that good on the ice. They, they have these two, two tragedies, you know, that, that first season, Kansas city and Durda 16 game winless streak from February into March. They won 15 games for the year. Their attendance was an average of like 8,500 and some odd people but darn it if they didn't try. And they actually got off on a pretty respectable way in their second season through their yeah. first six games. They were 3-2-1, and one, and then the roof caved in. Again, a lack of talent, not a lack of effort, but it just proved too much to overcome. And, of course, as the season progresses and we're getting into January and Kansas City is struggling, I think January of 1976 really signaled the end. Gidelin resigned. Nolay was traded. Sid Abel finally had had enough, didn't he? Well... That's not the impression that I got. I think he was kind of desperate for quick fixes. And you mentioned that Nolay was traded. That was hard for Mr. Abel to do. But the scouts were getting pushed around. And one of the players that came back, actually the trade, uh, 
with Pittsburgh, it was a pretty good trade because they got Chuck Arneson from the Penguins, who was a pretty good goal scorer. And in the second half of the second season, Arneson, he did put some pucks in the net for the scouts, but since they were being pushed around, they also acquired a defenseman by the name of Steve Durbano. Okay, side side note here. I remember watching Steve Durbano and Nicky Fatiu get into it at Madison Square Garden. I was there, and it oh, was the free for all, the free for all where he moved the crowd at guard. It was unbelievable. I was there for that. You were in the building. I was there. I was one of the nineteen thousand or eighteen thousand people there. For once, I was there. <laughs> Well, of course, he mooned the crowd as he left the ice, and I've watched yep. that YouTube video of Jim Gordon and Bill Chadwick. The big uh, whistle. Yeah. Oh, they were great. Anyway, um, <laughs> Durbano goes off at the one end of the ice, which I don't know if it's still the same since the renovation of the garden, but at one end of the ice is where the visitors left, and then the Rangers exited what looked to me like through one of the benches, you know, in the bench area, and all of a sudden, everybody starts scrambling down the hallway, because yep. apparently there was a hallway that you could, Patil and Durbano apparently were trying to get each other, get at each other in the hallway, yep. and they, you got people, you know, scrambling on their skates down the runway and stuff, and I don't know if anything ever came of that, but you, you got Jim Gordon and and the big whistle up there, oh, hopefully they've got somebody in there to <laughs> keep the peace, you know, and He was a Golden Gloves champion who could skate. Staten Island guy. Yep, yep. But anyway, so let's get back to the scouts. So the scouts go out and they get Durbano. Yeah, and they got what they were looking for. He uh, he threw his weight around uh, and uh, had some interesting situations. He He never moved, to my recollection, he never moved a crowd as he did as a member of the St. Louis Blues later. Uh, he didn't do that when he was with the scouts, but um, there were some instances in Chicago, also Buffalo, where he just uh, he lost his cool. And the sad thing about Steve Durbano, if it hadn't been for a hand injury that he suffered when he was still with Pittsburgh prior to coming to Kansas City, that hand injury affected his skill level for the rest of of his career, yes. He he could fight. He was aggressive. But as a D-man, he had skill. He was a number one draft choice of the New York Rangers. Wow. And uh, the Rangers liked that combination of skill and aggressiveness. Didn't work out in New York. I think his rookie year, the Rangers sent him down to Omaha. Set all kinds of records in the CHL for penalty minutes and in one season. They sent him to St. Louis for the first tour of duty there. Ended up in Pittsburgh, uh, Kansas City. Uh, he eventually was with the infamous uh, Birmingham Bulls, the WHA, which was sort mm-hmm. of like the WHA's version of the Paul Newman Johnstown uh, Chiefs. And then at the tail end of his career, he uh, went back to the NHL with uh, the St. Louis Blues. Uh, interesting note on the scouts final ever home game against the Los Angeles Kings Durbano gets into a fracas with uh, Dave Hutchison mm-hmm. of LA 
Mm-hmm. And during the tussle, um, Durbano wore a toupee, apparently. <laughs> <on the face. laughs> uh, Hutchison pulled the toupee off, which infuriated Derby. But what really infuriated Derby was Hutchison used his stick and flipped the toupee back in Durbano's face. And Derby went ballistic, kicked out of the game, throws practice pucks and practice cones onto the ice, throws his skates onto the ice. And before the game ended, he was observed by players still playing in the game up in the Kemper Arena Club having a meal watching the rest (laughs) of the game. He was quite a character. He's quite a character. I, I will say this. I've been approached, Warren, by other media en- entities that have found out about this book. And and a couple of them, their primary interest was on Durbano. Hmm, interesting. And I was willing to help them to a certain extent. The man died young. Mm-hmm. He had issues in his post-hockey life. But when he died, he had relocated to the Canadian Northwest Territories and was trying to get his life together. Mm -hmm. And so I just wasn't really willing to go all that far with all of the shenanigans and whatnot, which may have been a detriment to me publicizing the book, but out of respect to him and his children, uh, that's the decision I made. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so Abel went out and got Durbano, and um, so you're saying that he really didn't give up on the team, but I think the writing was on the wall. I mean, this team was behind on rent, and interestingly enough, the 70s, the scouts weren't the only team that struggled. There was the California Golden Seals, who ultimately became the Cleveland Barons, and that team was within hours of not taking the ice for a game. But for the scouts, the NHL had a plan to help the scouts make it through the season. And they wanted the scouts to sell X number of season tickets for the 76-77 season, but the scouts couldn't meet that goal. So they were rescued for the 75-76 season um, but they were about to move. How did how did Colorado figure into the picture? Well, the NHL did loan the scouts some money during the '76 portion of that final season, and that's how the scouts were able to meet payroll. They never missed a payroll, mm-hmm. but they would have if the league hadn't pumped in some money. And they didn't want a team to fold in the middle of the season. There you go. There you go. It would be awful. Think about the public relations disaster. Awful. Awful. So so they put it on life support. I guess that's the best way of Mm -hmm. putting it. But as we move into the summer of 1976, there were a small number of Kansas City Hockey Associates ownership that were wanting to refinance and try to keep this thing afloat, but the majority of the other investors had had enough. 
I mean, the creditors are already knocking at the door. Uh, the more sensible ones, like this attorney, uh, Bob Fisher, who is a primary source, as I mentioned, the guy that I met in Kansas City twice the second time when Trump, you know, was doing his thing. Mm -hmm. And he, he's, he's pretty blunt at the end of the book saying this thing. It's not going to work. <laughs> you had other investors that were really operating on hope, and uh, Bob is quoted in the book as saying something along the lines, well, hope is great. I, I'm hopeful, but hope is not a real good financial strategy, and uh, you, you got to have some dough. And the NHL had made arrangements to uh, sell you know, the majority of the uh, ownership decided, okay, we've got a buyer in Colorado, and that's oil man Jack Vickers. Let's sell it and see what we can get back. Ultimately, Colorado assumed a significant amount of that debt that the scouts had accumulated. But this, this deal, selling the team from the Kansas City Hockey Associates to Jack Vickers' group, that deal was greased by John Ziegler, who was a league attorney, and I probably don't need to tell you that he ultimately succeeded Clarence Campbell mm -hmm. as NHL president. You know, Gary Bettman's referred to as commissioner. That's his official title. Back then, you were the president mm -hmm. of the NHL. And um, so these guys that wanted to refinance, uh, bless their hearts, they 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 had the best intentions, but they didn't have the revenue, and, and and the league had made a decision that this team will be sold, and mm -hmm. that's the way it went. You know, they're in Denver for six years as the Colorado Rockies. For our youngsters out there, don't confuse that with the Major League Baseball team. Yep. And then after that, John McMullen buys the franchise and moves it to the New Jersey Meadowlands, where they go on to win three Stanley Cups. Hey. One of the final games at Kemper Arena drew the largest crowd ever, but of course tickets were only $2 a piece. But did that say anything about the Kansas City Scout fan that hockey could or just would never make it in Kansas City? Did, did having such a large crowd there say, hey, you know, Maybe we could have made it if we did something different. Well, Warren, that's a really good question. One I've never pondered before. I just figured people wanted cheap entertainment and <laughs> two bucks. Like, and, you know, what, the beer might have been 50 cents a draft, and maybe uh, who knows how many young people were in there that, that were looking for a good time. Uh, I, obviously, that promotion was an act of desperation. Mm -hmm. They probably ended up losing money on that. Um, oh, gosh. I think when that game against the Seals was played, I, the fate was already sealed. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it was a foregone conclusion. That, well, it may not have been a foregone conclusion deal, but...
say Jack Vickers, as it turns out, they would have folded that franchise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been good. It wouldn't have been good, but it would have been better than having a team close up shop yep. during a season. Yeah, I, I, the the embarrassment and really, I think at that point, the legitimacy of the league would have been questioned. You know, and you mentioned, you mentioned here real quick here, Warren. You mentioned that uh, you know the California Golden Seals were struggling. Well, as you allude to, they moved to Cleveland to become the Barons. Yep. At the same time as the Scouts moved to become the Colorado Rockies, well, it didn't work in Cleveland either. And to avoid folding the Cleveland Barons. The Barons were merged with the, the existing Stars. Minnesota North Stars, and that led to the demise of the Cleveland Barons. You know, Kansas City went winless in its final 27 games, and that's a record that stayed intact until it was broken by the Winnipeg Jets in the 1980-81 season. And again, a little history here. That Winnipeg Jet team is actually the Coyotes now. The Winnipeg Jet team that exists today is actually the Atlanta Thrashers. Anyway, it's sort of fitting that Kansas City ended its time with such a mark that they go winless in their final 27 games. But the story doesn't end there. It wasn't no, it over. I mean, this is this must have been so painful. They actually had to go and play the Washington Capitals after the season was over in a series in Japan, and they lost the first three games of that series. So technically, they lost their last, or they went winless in their last 30 games as the Kansas City Scouts. What was with this series in Japan? Well... You mentioned the first three games. Oh, I there forgot. You're forward. right. They won. They were, they there was, won that's the okay. That's okay. Yeah. You have set me up while you just gave the whole tease away. <laughs> but we'll get back to that okay. here in a second. <laughs> the whole idea of the Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup, excuse me, it wasn't Bottlers, Coca-Cola Battlers Cup, this was a a good idea on the part of the National Hockey League to promote the sport of hockey in Japan. Uh, remember the 1972 Winter Olympics had just uh, been played in um, Sapporo, mm-hmm. uh, a city in the northern part of the country. And, uh, you know, I minored in geography in college, so I'm familiar with the fact that, uh, you know, North Korea, South Korea, uh, northern half of Japan, uh, it gets pretty darn cold there. So, uh, you know, at least they had some ice and whatnot. Well, it was a, you know, Coca-Cola had a sponsorship and paid the freight. And the NHL uh, made a pretty simple decision that at the end of that season, 1975-76, that the Caps and the Scouts were both so far out of playoff contention that <laughs> we'll send them. You know, what the heck? And, uh, and it's interesting, uh, the guys that I talked to, they were pretty excited to go to Japan. And, 
they got a pretty good per diem. Mm-hmm. Randy Roto, one of the scouts, I want to say it was uh, it was more than $1,200. I mean, expenses were paid for, and, and the Japanese treated the Capitals and the scouts as if they were the Philadelphia Flyers and the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, they, mm-hmm. oh, you know, and, and, and I think uh, <laughs> what was fascinating is, I don't want to stereotype the Japanese people, but you don't have a lot of Wilt Chamberlain types <laughs> that are native <laughs> Japanese. I mean, they're, yeah. they're just smaller folks, and, and they would look at these guys, and of course on ice skates, they're even you know taller than if they were flat-footed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese were enthralled by the scene of uh, the Caps and the Scouts out there, and there were even a few fights. I think they were <laughs> they were kind of like brother-in-law fights where, okay, let's have some fun and push each other around and everything. Well, the Japanese were enthralled by that. They they were enthralled by the sight of somebody being sentenced to the penalty box. They got to sit there <laughs> in that box. And so I think it overall went very well for the NHL as a promotional exercise. Um, interestingly enough, Dale Graham, the trainer, told me a great story. Randy Rhoda mentioned this too. Randy, one of the players, that on the way back from Japan after the four-game series, they had a stopover in Hawaii. And uh, my understanding is, is the Capitals and the Scouts players and wives, they they had a quite enjoyable time in Maui after the series. But here's the kicker. They, they lose their final... I think you said 27 games in the first three games in Japan. And the final game, uh, the first two were played in Sapporo, the final two in Tokyo, in a building that actually was the site of the swimming competition at the 1964 Summer Olympics. The scouts beat the Washington Capitals. So, interesting trivia question here, folks. The Kansas City scouts won the last game in their history, but it didn't count. <laughs> Unreal. Uh, what a what a fitting end. You know, Troy, your passion for this topic has come through so well, and I am so glad you answered my email when I sent it to you about coming on and talking about the Kansas City Scouts. And I am quite sure we could carry this conversation on for quite some time. But unfortunately, we can't. Um, We've got to wrap this up. And I want to thank you so much for spending such a a, a wonderful amount of time with me for speaking about something that is obviously dear to your heart and it has been a lot of fun. Well, real quick, Warren, can I get a final minute here, maybe? Absolutely. You mentioned the word passion, and I wouldn't have gotten through this project as a researcher and a writer if, one, I hadn't had the passion. But to me, any good reporter has to be a very curious person. And that curiosity, you mentioned earlier, you you find something in the research and it sends you on this path and leads you to this and leads you to this. And it was a wonderful experience. So 
thank you for your kind words. Uh, the title of the book is Icing on the Plains. The subtitle is The Rough Ride of Kansas City's NHL Scouts. You can get it at your Amazon.com, uh, Barnes & Noble, but I leave you with this, Warren. I am a fan of bricks and mortar bookstores. Mm-hmm. And they're close to dinosaur status if they haven't already gotten there. But if you want to get this book, or any book, if you're a reader, my hope is you will patronize your local bookstore and try to keep them alive. Because typically, you know, minus the chains, but if you have a locally owned and operated bookstore, there's no doubt in my mind that the owner of that bookstore is a reader and loves books. Very well said. Troy, again, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you. The Scouts certainly endured a lot during their short time in Kansas City. And the reasons why the team never made it are so many. How the NHL, which obviously is a much better run league today than it was back in the mid-1970s, could let all that happened happen, not only to the Scouts, but to the California Golden Seals, the Cleveland Barons, and the Minnesota North Stars, is mind-boggling. From rushing into getting the team set up to not making sure the scouts would have a place to play from day one to the expansion draft to allowing such a crazy number of people to buy into the team to the many internal debacles and tragedies that took place, I think it's fair to say the scouts never had a chance and just might be one of the most least known, irrelevant, and forgotten sports franchises of all time. To learn more about the Scouts, and there is a ton more to learn, get a copy of Troy's book, Icing on the Plains, The Rough Ride of Kansas City's NHL Scouts. It really is a fascinating story, and the book, well, it's really fun to read. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to head out to the links and talk some golf. And one of the PGA's Forgotten Heroes, a guy who won the Masters three times and is really only remembered every year when the Masters rolls around. We're talking about Jimmy Demerit. That's next time. Once again, I'd like to thank Troy Treasure for joining us. And we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.